This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It's a three for Roy Hibbert. The shot is gone by Roy Hibbert with just 2.7 seconds to go. Inbound to Gordon. Inbound to Gordon. Inbound to Gordon. Spokes up a basket. No basket. No basket. No basket. No basket. No basket. Hoyas win. 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 Our Chevy Chase Bank postgame show is next. It's the iconic final call of Rich Chivotkin for more than 40 years. The play-by-play voice of the Georgetown Hoyas, one of the longest tenured broadcasters in all of Division I college athletics. Glad to have him here on the podcast. It's episode number 34 of Play-by-Play Cast, the podcast about play-by-play guys by a play-by-play guy for play-by-play guys. We never really get that in the exact right order. I think it's a podcast about play-by-play for play-by-play by play-by-play, but you get the gist. If you want to get in touch with the show, as always, feel free to hit us up on Twitter at PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet. Uh, you can find me by email or phone as well. It's all out there as well. Uh, but Twitter, probably the best way to reach out. And a bunch of you did that this week. Uh, we got a couple suggestions about guys to have on the podcast in weeks forthcoming. So uh, see what we can't make happen uh, over the next couple of weeks Before we go any further uh, as well, real quick, I want to say hello to the one person in Thailand who listens to this podcast, Uh, the nine Australians, the Algerian, the Moroccan, and the German. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to Play by Playcast. I found the the analytics tab on on our server this week, which tells you all of the places your podcast is listened to. Uh, We've been heard in Thailand. Uh, We made it. (laughs) And uh, I don't know what's going on in Maine, Vermont, Arkansas, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Alaska, or Hawaii, but get with the program, folks. The other 40-some-odd states, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The other 42 states have all all had somebody listen to play-by-playcast. Come on! I guess that means we're going to have to go give Bobby Curran a call or something. Get some listeners out in Hawaii. Talk some uh, Rainbow Warriors and, and some Rainbow Wahina. Cool, that that we've got that reach. Uh, so if you're listening abroad, hello. Uh, that being said, let's dive into t- uh, to today's guest. And uh, it is Rich Chivotkin, voice of the Georgetown Hoyas since the early 70s. He's broadcast more than 1,400 Georgetown Hoyas basketball games. So that includes Patrick Ewing. That includes Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, Allen Iverson, presumably who was at practice back then. Uh, called a national championship, Rich Chivotkin has. And I think one of the things that is most interesting about him, and we actually don't talk about this on the podcast, uh, I had intended to, and then we finished recording, and we're sitting there talking, and I just had this unbelievable realization that we hadn't touched on it. So we talked about it sitting there, but it's not recorded. One of the most amazing things about Rich is he has worked solo as the voice of the Georgetown Hoyas, since 1986, 
for 30 years has done basketball games solo on the radio. And I think the vast majority of us out there have done some solo basketball. I did a little bit when I was in South Florida. Everything I did at Fairley Dickinson was solo. And, and I've done a couple of games solo even this year here at Ball State. But it's a different task. And, and I think it's really interesting to see a guy undertake it and, and be as successful and, and thrive the way that Rich has uh, solo. It changes your approach to a broadcast. Uh, you know, Rich and I sat there and talked about how you can analyze things while trying to call play-by-play. It's difficult. You only have two eyes. So it's hard to see what's going on with the ball sometimes and also notice what's going on with the rotation of a defense. Where's the help defense coming from if they trap in the post? Who's being left open? How are they recovering? Uh, You notice it subconsciously, but being able to pick up on and get in there, which positions are switching ball screens, uh, how guys are going over or under. Uh, You have to take that pause to look at a defense and notice what they're in. Uh, You know, you get so in the flow of things. Teams will change defenses a lot. Sometimes, if you face a team that changes a lot of defenses. Um, And one of the things coaches always say about that is it can throw you as an offense because you have to make sure you know what you're facing before you get into a play. Well, it works the same way in play-by-play. You've got to take that beat to say, all right, they've gone to a 1-3-1 here. Last possession, they were in a matchup zone. Now they're playing a box in one or they're switching ball screens in man. So being able to pick up on all those things is a different type of challenge when you work solo and you have to pick and choose your spots a little bit more. And it was interesting to hear kind of Rich's perspective of, you know, first and foremost, your duty is to the physical play-by-play and making sure that that's right and accurate and then being able to sprinkle the other stuff in uh, in and around that. Uh, But Rich has worked solo since 1986. Other things interesting about him, he is a full-time practicing medical professional. Uh, He has done that throughout his career, so we'll talk about that work-life balance. Uh, He, of course, was the first radio voice at Georgetown, or at least they didn't have commercial radio uh, when he started doing it uh, back in in the 1970s. So we'll talk about uh, starting up and you know, being a, being a radio startup back in the 1970s and selling advertising and all of that. But where we start, too, is with how the industry has changed and what it's like to have been in this business for so long. I was curious, his view on uh, you know, how radio has changed, how basketball has changed, how analytics have started to play a role, and how he factors all of that into his broadcasts. So we start at the very beginning with Rich Javotkin, uh, who is one of the most senior broadcasters in all of college basketball, and he's here with us on Play by Playcast. I read you're the fifth most tenured broadcaster in basketball. Uh, do you know who the other four are? Well, I know for sure Don Fisher from Indiana is, is right about a year ahead of me. Billy Hillgrove is probably three or four ahead of me. And then Ray Goss for Duquesne is probably in his 48th or 49th year. So those three I know for sure. I don't know who the other two may be. I, there's a fella in New Hampshire that might also uh, have more years than us. But let, let me say this to you. T- to be around 40 to 45 to 50 years like, like Maury Manny's did, two things have to happen. You sure have to have your health and your brain's got to be working real good. <laughs> What's it like doing it for that long? Uh, just from the standpoint of having seen the amount of games you've seen, being the institution 
that you are to a lot of people, maybe without even realizing how much people have heard your voice over the years. Well, you know, what's interesting. I've gotten emails from people that say, you know, I grew up on your voice outside of my mother and father. You're the only voice I knew growing up. Well, it, it, it's kind of a compliment uh, that, that people appreciate the work you do. You know, I try to do my best each and every game. I do prepare. I have the energy necessary to do the broadcast. And it's been a great ride. You know, the people I have met over the years have just been fantastic. You know, Georgetown being a marquee institution nationally, you know, when you identify with Georgetown, you get a chance to meet a lot of people. And, and, and it's, it, it's been a very exciting run for me. Loaded question. How has it changed from 1973 to 2017? Well, the amazing thing is just the technology. I remember the first year I would talk to the SID and I'd have to write out the stats. Now you get everything on the computer. You don't have to talk to anybody. I, I, I lose the association that I've always enjoyed with sports information directors, athletic directors, because you don't have to talk to anybody. It's all on the computer. They say, email me. You know, I'm from the old school. You know, if I never saw a computer, I could still live with it. If I never saw a cell phone, I could still live with it because I grew up in the olden days. But the technology is tremendous today. You never have to worry about anything. Everything's right there, instantaneous stats. I think it's helped broadcast because you're so much more prepared. You know, years ago, you had to scrounge and scrounge to get information. Now it's all right there, right in front of your tips. It doesn't matter any, where you go, like even today. If I want to punch up instantaneous stats, you're able to do it. Preparation-wise, because you were around when you didn't have all of that at your fingertips, how does it change what you do today, too? Because obviously there's some stuff that's easier, but how much do you still just go back to let me talk to people. And how much do you think that informs what you do maybe differently than somebody that's 30 years old? I still like to talk to people. I, I don't think I've ever lost that involvement. I, I, I'm a people person. But to be honest with you, my, the old school has helped train me to do a better job today because I'm used to writing things down. I have it right in front of me. And, and somehow, in, in the way I work and the way I prepare with my brain, I can retain these things. You know, if you just prepare five minutes before... That's just not my style. I have to do it at least a day out to make sure I look at the stats, to look at the numbers, to make sure I have everything prepared. And then I don't have to be looking down. When you do play-by-play, -play, if you start looking down at your stat sheet, you may miss a play or two. So you have to have it almost ingrained in your brain how much assist each guy has contributed thus far, what their field goal percentage is. And again, it's been working for me the old school way, and it's hard to adapt and change. What do you think as you saw things change? I mean, nobody likes change. Uh, what are you thinking when you start to see all of that come in and then you note to yourself too like all right i've got to start adapting as well uh because otherwise the industry just moves on well i have had to adapt I and mean, there's no question in other words if i want to get statistics if i would pick up the phone and call an sid he said look at the website <laughs> said, look at the website what do you mean you're asking you're asking me just look at the website it's all there and, what and, and, yeah what and, and and i'm saying to myself yeah you have to adapt and i have in other words i you know it, it's really easy now but but I, I like the old school way because you had a chance to talk to people, relate to people. You talked to them before a game and you could say, okay, any changes, any of this and that. Whereas on the computer, it, it, it's all there written down for you. These kids may not play or these kids are injured. So, so you lose the, the personal touch, but then you gain so much more. How do you feel about advanced metrics and kind of the saber metrics and the Ken Palm stuff and, and working that into a broadcast and how that's changed, how people perceive the game. You know, it's fascinating. When, when you look at Kemp Palm and you look at all the things that they do and just the analysis of games and what they've come up with, like how many times a person shot from three-point range with two minutes to go or, you know, fouls in the last five minutes and all those things are very, very relevant to a broadcast because how many games come down to the last two possessions where a guy goes to the free-throw line? If you could say a team shoots 30%, you know, in the last two minutes or a team shoots 80%, that's information that fans want to know. And most people don't look at Kemp Palm. I mean, I do. You know, sports junkies like 
like you and I who love the game of basketball are always looking for, for new insights, new information, and new ways to deliver a broadcast. But, but the still play-by-play -play I think is so critical. As much as you have all this ancillary stuff and statistics, if you can't give a good play-by-play, -play, then no matter what you have as ancillary is not good enough. Do you talk about that kind of stuff? Um, do you take the time to explain what adjusted efficiency could mean and why it's impactful on a game? Or is that something where it's better left to the sports junkie and you well, stick with the layman's terms? To be honest with you, I do. I try to explain. If I'm saying something like assist to turnover ratio, I'll explain what that means because the average person may not understand what that means. So, so I think you have to go, if you're going to talk about Kempom, you're going to talk about those kinds of things, I think you have to let people know what it is you're referring to. Sure. Let's go back to the beginning, if we can. Uh, you moved to Washington, D.C. in 1972 to be a psych in Walter Reed, correct? That's correct. And uh, I was always a basketball fan and went to some Georgetown games, and I saw they didn't have any radio. So what I went, uh, I, I went and did a few tapes. I did some tapes for the Washington, then Bullets, did a couple of Georgetown tapes, and then, then went to the sports information director and athletic director and Coach Thompson, and I said, uh, you don't have any commercial radio. I'm kind of surprised. I'd be willing. Here's my tapes. They said, fine. They liked the tapes. I did it four or five of them. They, they called me in and said, Rich, you're the voice of the Hoyas. Wonderful. <laughs> I said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Except there's one problem. We don't have a radio station, and two, we don't have any advertising. So, and this was October of the year that I first started. So, I had a scrounge. And my wife-to-be, we went throughout Southeast D.C., every friend I knew, i called them, and I was able to get sponsorships and able to get a radio station. We went over to WOOK, which was in Northeast D.C. It, it was an all-Afro-American station, and I walked into the director and I said, look, uh, you know, you're the only last hope for us. And they said, we'd love to put you on the air. And I remember what he said was, he said, you, you pay Rich's fees, you pay Rich, you pay all this stuff. He said, I'm not paying anything. We'll put you on the air. And we had no choice, so we did it. And then... Every year for, for that first three or four years, we had to still scrounge for a station because there wasn't a great market for college basketball. Maryland had, had uh, a radio and then, of course, GW and American split in one of the stations. So we were kind of the odd person out. But then after Ewing came in 81, 82, I mean, people were crying to, to, to take our rights over. So the first couple of years were kind of shaky. We were on the air and uh, Georgetown did very well. I mean, only one year uh, out of that did we not go to the NCA the first four or five. Then when Ewing came, look out. So we we were in very good shape, and, and now the market continues to, to drive Georgetown up higher. What was the history of radio for Georgetown? Had it existed at all before you? Had people approached them before? And, and what said, all right, this is finally the guy? As far as I know, when I first got to D.C. in 72, they did have what they call a campus station, WGTB. And they did some of the games. On, it was like a student station. But there was not commercial radio. And, and I, w I was really surprised because, you know, Georgetown, even though they struggled dur during the early 70s before Thompson came, they, uh, they, there really wasn't a market for college basketball at that time. You know, Maryland had the rights under WMAL and GW, and like I said, American split one of the stations, WEAM, but there was really never a market. So when I approached them, they were kind of interested because they felt like with Coach Thompson, he was in his third year at that time. It was a D.C. Uh, school, basically, D.C. kids. Coach Thompson grew up in D.C. I figured this is going to be a great match. Now we just got to go out and sell this thing. And, and I went into Southeast D.C. and talked it up with, with a clothing store and car dealers and hair cuttering and various other organizations. Said, hey, look, this is an opportunity. And they all went for it. 
How many of those original sponsors? Like, is Hair Cuttery still a sponsor? Hair, no, Hair Cuttery, no, no, no. They're, they're not there anymore. Senate Dodge, uh, Ducky's Quack Shack was one of them. That, that's one of my great all-time favorites. And, and then uh, Stereo World. In fact, a friend of mine owned Stereo World in Alexander, Virginia. And he sponsored and uh, Mackie uh, Vending Machines, who had the rights to Georgetown's uh, uh, vending machine program. So they, they sponsored. There were original sponsors. No, they're, they're not there anymore. Now you get Coca-Cola. Now you get Nissan. Now, now you get the big national brands in. Sure. What was the the thought process for you? I mean, had you ever thought I want to be in radio, or uh, where was it in in your brain as far as how it would fit together? I, I did an undergraduate at the University of Scranton, and I was pretty good at it. But you know, I I never really thought I would make a career. But I just did it as part of my my college career. I was always a sports junkie, you know, growing up. I grew up with P.J. Carlissimo. You know, obviously you know who P.J. is. John A. Walsh grew up down the street from me. He was a year older. He eventually came one of the top executives at ESPN. Was responsible with their sports center. So we, we grew up in that ilk of, you know, of, of it was part of our college life. But but then, you know, as, as, you, as you graduate, I went on to grad school, and, you know, I, I lost that identification. When I came back to Washington, I figured, okay, I went to some college games. I enjoyed it. I lived right around the corner from the University of Maryland, and uh, I figured I'd love to get back into this thing. And that's when I made some tapes, and, you know, the tapes were decent. I mean, I, I listened to the, those old tapes, and I said, hey, they, they, you're pretty good. I mean, when I say pretty good, I mean, I, I gave a decent delivery for the games. You know, it was, and, and I said, obviously, if, if someone likes this, I have an opportunity to, to, to move along. And that's how I got started. How much better have you gotten from 1973 to now, and, and what was kind of your, your self-evaluation process through the years? You know, I look back on this, and I, I've listened to some tapes in the 73-74 season. I've listened, excuse me, 74-75, 73-74 was when I started making them. Literally tapes, too, by the yeah, way. tapes, at, literally tapes. To take the tape recorder to the arenas, sitting there at, at courtside. In fact, I was very, very lucky because Mark Splaver, who, who since passed away, uh, was the sports information director of the Washington Bullets at that time, and he was very, very gracious and allowed me to, to do the tapes right at Press Row. In fact, I still talk to some of the people, like mm-hmm. Wes Unseld, who remembered that I did these tapes at way back. Bob Ferry, who was involved with the Washington uh, Bullets at that time. In fact, they still see me said, you know, it's amazing you're still doing this. And this was 45 years ago. And, you know, they, they, they just love the fact that I'm still connected and still involved and still have energy. But that's how I, I was able to, to get there in, in, into those programs because it was just perseverance. I just said, look, I'd like to do this and they were very gracious. Georgetown was, was gracious to allow me to do the, the, the tapes. And, and as I look back on it, to get back to your question, you know, I'm not so sure I've changed a whole lot. Maybe I've changed a few phrases or two, but it's, it's the same kind of delivery. You know, it's kind of boom, 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 boom. And, and uh, as I look back on it, you know, if, if I had the play-by-play uh, that I did 20 years ago versus today, pretty much be the same. Who'd you look up to? Uh, who did you want to be when you were a kid? Well, I always listened to Marv Albert growing up. You know, I, I, again, you know, Marv's not that much older than I am. But you know, my first couple of years, you have to model for after somebody, just the way their style is, some of the phrases. Uh, of course, Chick Hearn, uh, Kaywood Ledford, and uh, Woody Durham. You know, the, the, those individuals I listen to. I listen to. But then I develop my own style. I think each one has to become comfortable. You know, when, when you're there and and you have to be spontaneous, you can't be thinking about, okay, I better emulate this person. You just have to give your own delivery. 
what's it like calling a game against, well, you're not against somebody, but, you know, you, you look up to a guy like Woody Durham and then you're sitting there in 1982 and he's doing the game with you. Absolutely. What, you know, it, it's like you, you're, you're going head-to-head against a legend in some way, although, you know, we're not the, the major attraction. It's the ball game. But, yeah, it, it's kind of nice to have an opportunity to be broadcast against these kind of legends, you know, and, and, and to go to games when you had Dick Vitale and, and, and some of the great legends that uh, Al McGuire. You know, it, it, it's fun to be around those guys. You know, as a kid growing up, you say to myself, Am I actually talking to these people and getting a hug from these people and face-to-face and, and, and coming over and, and giving me a hug before a ball game? I said to myself, this is really, really special. Most interesting person you've gotten to meet or interview, I, and I ask that question because specifically you're at Georgetown and you're in D.C., uh, and I'm curious if there's going to be a presidential answer, uh, but <laughs> beyond that, who else have you gotten to meet? No, I, I, I really would have loved an opportunity to, to interview the president. Uh, you know, especially Clinton was a Georgetown graduate and, uh, you know, Obama maybe coming to some of the ball games. But I guess, you know, the security is so tight around those guys. You know, what, what they would have to navigate to come to a, it would be difficult. I did get a chance to interview Oral Roberts, and, and, and that was special when we played out in, uh, at Tulsa uh, for Georgetown Oral Roberts game. But, but he's probably the most famous guy I interviewed. In fact, it was interesting when we played in Honolulu against Oral Roberts a couple years later, his son came up to me and he said, I want to let you know my father really enjoyed your interview because he doesn't do that many. And he was very, very pleased. He said, I just want to say hello for my father. And he said he really enjoyed the interview. This was Oral's son, you know, because he was there at the the game in Honolulu. So that was nice. You've been a doctor this whole time too, right? Yes. Yeah, it's been fun. I still have a psychology practice and uh, it keeps me going. And that's the other point of my life. Yeah, it's a good balance. How do you do it? Well, you know what? I have the energy, and, and, and I think everybody has to have a little balance in their life. I think to have too much of one thing, you know, I, I think it's. I, I think that that's what makes you live a little longer. You know, you have an opportunity to do, do different things, and you never bog down in one. Did you ever have anybody look at you and say, like, you're missing a lot of work because you've got to go do this side job with Georgetown, and, and how do you handle that, especially in the earlier years? Well, in the earlier years, you know, I, when I say miss a lot of work, I, I've always built that into my schedule. I was very, very, very fortunate. Whatever employer I have, they kind of enjoy that I was doing this broadcast stuff. And, you know, and again, it's cyclical. It's not the fact that you're gone every week. It's not the fact that you're gone four or five days a week. You know, a lot of games are on weekends, so you, that, that doesn't affect your, your real job. Secondarily, that, that the track travel. Uh, you're usually back right after the game, especially now the way we charter. So I really don't miss too much work. And again, everybody's entitled to, you know, 15, 20, 30 days a year of vacation. So I'm able to build that in and, and it's been a wonderful ride. I, I'm thinking of this question pseudo jokingly, but uh, I'll see where it goes from there. But if you're a, a psychologist uh, and you work in basketball, did you ever like see something and say to Coach Thompson, like, why don't you talk to this guy? Because I, I, can, I get the feeling like something's going on. Well, you always look at things. You know, b- being in, 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 in human behavior-related work, you know, always see some things. But I've learned one important thing. There's boundaries here. If, if there's one thing you learn in, in the mental health profession is stay in your lane. <laughs> Keep your boundaries straight, okay? Coach Thompson, very capable of managing the emotions of his team. That's part of his job, you know. And, and again, I, I don't see a need to do any of that. You know, I, I may have some thoughts, but again, a lot of people... I have thoughts about a lot of things, but, but I, I pretty much stay in my lane. I, I keep it together, and I think that's why I've been able to do this for 40-some years because I do stay in my lane. What was it like to see him grow as a head coach and to be there when he wasn't, I mean, obviously people knew who he was, but he wasn't the name he was then that he is now, and to see him become what he was and build Georgetown into what it was? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I know those kids when they were eight and six, and I'm talking about John the Third and, and his brother Ronnie. 
So again, in fact, one day Ronnie walked me across the arena and said, you know what? When we were young, growing up in Northeast D.C., we used to listen to you because I was their first kind of entree. They're, you know, TV was not very, very big at that time, so they used to listen to me. In fact, I have had so many kids who grow up in the D.C. area and say, all we did was listen to you growing up because there was no other medium to get Georgetown basketball. Games weren't on TV, so it, it, it's nice to see John grow up. You know, I remember when he was in high school, and of course, then he went to Princeton. In fact, I remember seeing him when he was assistant coach at Princeton when we played Rutgers. I always take a drive down to, to uh, Princeton and stop and always say hello, you know, because I, I was always very fond of John, John the father and his kids. So, you know, it, it's it's great to see him grow and, and, and develop and, and get to the final four in 2007. Hopefully he'll get back there real soon. What about his father, uh, to see his growth as a coach as well, being there from almost the beginning? Well, right. I was there uh, his third year and, and, of course, you know, worked with John for 27 years before we retired in 1999, you know, especially to have him pick up Patrick Ewing and, and, and go to the national championship game three of the four years that Ewing was there was really special. I, I, I don't think that error will ever be replicated in terms of Georgetown basketball. That, 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 that team, that, that, that error was just very, very special. But, but, again, to see the father, you know, grow national championship, and not only basketball-wise, you know, he was an icon, a marquee individual in the national scene and, and stood for a lot of things that he believed in. He's got a fairly affable personality if you listen to him on the radio today. But what kind of guy was he? Because obviously there's an intimidating aura around him as a head coach. What was he like back then? Well, you always knew who was in charge. I mean, I got along well with John because I stayed in my lane. I knew what my role was. I was very comfortable with He was comfortable with me. But obviously he was very intimidating. And, and you knew who was boss of the program. I mean, John, and, and, and if he wanted you not to say some things, you would not say certain things. So, again, I understood what he stood for. I understood what he was trying to do and was very comfortable working for him in that regard. Uh, Department. Why do you think he's been or, or was so successful as a head coach, seeing it from the perspective you had? Well, I, I think he taught kids about life, too. In other words, it was not just basketball. You know, we walk into John's office way back when he had the deflated basketball. I think that told people where he stood. He stood for education. He was a student athlete. Well before people start talking about student athletes, he had the deflated basketball. And you knew exactly, and the kids knew exactly what that meant, that you had to produce not only as, as on the basketball court, but also in the classroom. And he was very, very pro-education. What did you learn? I mean, at that point, obviously, you're, you're a grown adult, but, but what did you take away from being around a guy like that? Well, I learned that there's more to life than basketball. And, and I, I think you learn that, sure, basketball's front. I, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the associations. But you also have to put in perspective, it's just a part of one's life. And if you don't have something to balance it off, and, and that's why it's important. I tell my kids, you know, obviously he's told his kids that you need to take a look at what this means in terms of once your college career is over, what are you going to fall back on? Have you ever told John the Third stories about him as a child or been able to reflect on things that maybe he doesn't remember about? Well, I, in fact, it was interesting. Uh, the other day we were playing in Providence and, uh, you know, that, that Georgetown game one versus 16. And I said, Coach, you know, I was sitting right over there when, when Shravis, uh, uh, when Morning blocked the, 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 the shot by uh, Kit Mueller. And, and he said something like, yeah, and I was up there walking around <laughs> around the arena because I couldn't sit and watch the rest of this. So, yeah, those kinds of stories. Sure, sure. You mentioned the, the national championship games with Patrick, uh, and we talked about you know being able to broadcast a, a, across from a guy like Woody earlier as well. Uh, what is the feeling of broadcasting a national championship game, um, and what kind of jitters and butterflies does it give you as a broadcaster? Because obviously uh, you have zero impact on what's going to happen on the floor. 
but I imagine there's still an amount of nerves that go into it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, it's interesting. In fact, I was talking to Frank Rienzo, the, uh, the, the, the longtime Georgetown athletic director who's since retired athletic director emeritus the other day, and I said, you know, Coach, I said, before a game, I said, I have to go to the bathroom four or five times. I could drive six hours on a trip and not have to go once. And he said, nerves, Rich, nerves. Of course, that's what it is. And especially to call a national championship game. You know, you're always so jittery. You want the kids to win so much. You know, you want to give a good broadcast. You know, it's a, a, it's a marquee game. Yeah, yeah, I think you get, get up for it and a little nervous. Do you remember what you said when Fred Brown threw it behind him? Oh, yes. I remember what I said. I, I basically reviewed the tape. Yeah, I said an uncharacteristic pass by Freddie Brown. I mean, in other words, when you look at the tape and you look at where Worthy was, it looked like he was on Georgetown's side of the floor. And, uh, you know, you wonder why was Worthy where he was. Why was he almost in Georgetown's backcourt? He should have been. Here's a 6'9 guy. He should be underneath the hoopers close by. So, yeah, it was just an unfortunate situation. Thank goodness Freddie was able to right himself. They won the national championship two years later. And, uh, you know, people always look upon that play. But you know what? I, I look back on how many other plays were there in that game that could have decided that. You know, that unfortunately happened at the end of the game and with the game on the line. But had, had they not had a turnover earlier in the ball game, and that the game might not have come down to the last play. And in fact, that's one thing Coach Thompson and I talk about. Yeah, you look at a game's end, and it's critical. That's what everybody remembers. But what about the first possession where, where they miss a layup? What about the third possession where they miss a couple of free throws? Those could have impacted the game. We wouldn't have to worry about things at game's end. I imagine from a broadcasting standpoint, too, especially a college broadcaster, it gives you the the moment of perspective of remembering they're still 19 years old at the end of the day as well. So as in the moment you go, what did you just do? You have to remember who they are and, and what type of kid he is. And then obviously you mentioned he comes back and wins one a couple of years later. So all's well that ends well. Yeah, I think that's that's a very, very good point because, you know, these are young kids. You know, they're, they're not being paid for their services. They're going to make mistakes. That's what kids do. And you don't think kids are going to have a perfect 40 minutes. No, that's why you have a, a box called turnovers. And, and I think you have to understand, you know, these kids try their best they're all student athletes. They give it their all. They're going to make mistakes. You just hope that, you know, unfortunately, when you make a mistake like that in the national limelight, it gets magnified. If I take the national championships or NCAA tournament runs out of it, uh, I might even say Big East tournament runs because sometimes uh, as a Syracuse grad, those can be more fun. Um, what sticks out as great places you've been or games you've been able to experience firsthand? You know, it's been fascinating. You know, Georgetown being a national power over the years, you know, I've been to Puerto Rico. We played a game in Korea. We were on a battleship. I mean, I, I've done things that you would never even dream when I first started. We'd, we'd be playing in the Bahamas. We'd be playing in Puerto Rico. What, what, we'd be playing a game against Florida on a battleship. I mean, th this stuff is inconceivable. You know, would we be playing games in in, uh, in in Korea? You know, against Oregon and, and, and uh, to, to to support the armed forces. You know, and I was in the military and, and, and a long-time reservist and retired as a colonel. So I enjoyed going back to those kinds of venues because that was part of my life for a long period of time. Yeah, you know, I, I look upon that today and say this has been really special. If, if 74, 75, you told me I would be at the certain venues like Kansas's Allen Fieldhouse, games at the Palestra, uh, Madison Square Garden. In fact, I, believe it or not, have probably done more games at Madison Square Garden than any other college broadcaster because I did the entire Big East tournament from 82 to 99, and we started at Madison Square Garden in 83. So for a 16-year run, I did at least 10, 11, 12 games a year at Madison Square Garden. Times that close to 20 years, that's a lot of games sure. at the world's most famous arena. So, you know, I'm right up there in the record books of that. 
tell me about Korea and tell me about the battleship. Um, what, what, first off, culturally going to Korea was like, especially with a group of college-age kids and, and watching them experience something that uh, is that culturally diverse? And then also, just from a battleship standpoint, what it's like logistically doing a game on a ship deck? Well, it's fascinating because, you know, I, being in the military, I was not awestruck by any of this. In other words, I had been involved. I was in the Gulf War back in the 90-91 campaign, the first Gulf War. So I was comfortable with the military. So going to Korea on a military base, but to watch the kids interact with the other troops, you know, obviously none of them had been in the military. They're still 18-year-old to 21-year-old kids, but they were just fascinating. J- just the the way the military carries themselves, the professionalism when they showed them all around, the, the helicopters, things like that, you know, and, and what they were doing at Camp Humphreys, slowly the military is moving out of South Korea, out of Seoul, and, and moving into Camp Humphreys, more for defensive purposes as well, you know, with North Korea, you know, just a number of kilometers away. So it was it was exciting to see the kids experience that, to, to, to go to Korea, have an opportunity, because m- most kids would never, ever have an opportunity to do that, you know, especially if you're not involved with the military. And then playing on the battleship, you know, kind of 15 stories up, you know, out overlooking the ocean, and here you are on, on the deck of a ship. I mean, really, really special. And, and and those kinds of things are so educational for these kids. It's the first time a guy's ever shot an air ball and somebody said the sun got in his eyes. That's right. Well, the sun gets in your eyes or the ball bounces off the court into the ocean. You know, you say to yourself, <laughs> okay, that, that's kind of interesting. Or you say temperature at game time, 32 degrees because you're kind of outside, you know, with a glaze on the deck. I mean, those things you don't normally say. In fact, we used to play at Pearl Harbor, I used to say, you know, wind blowing at, at five miles an hour because you're in, in an arena, but you had like an open arena. So, you know, those are kinds of things you never say. I didn't even think about a ball going into the ocean, but that's kind of humorous when you think about it in that perspective. Um, I want to talk to you stylistically as well. You're very well known for Hoyo's win. Uh, when did you first proclaim Hoyo's win at the end of a broadcast? I think it was way back, I, I want to say the year that Georgetown with Iverson, uh, his freshman year when they beat Weber State and, and Don Reed made a reverse layup uh, to win the game off an Iverson miss. And I think that started Hoya's win. And then my kid said, you know, Dad, why don't you use Hoya's win as your handle, your, your Twitter? And, in fact, uh, the athletic director, Lee Reed, even said to me, why don't we just make a T-shirt, Hoya's win? He said, because no one else has something like that. I, I started that probably back in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, it, it's been something that people enjoy. And if they, you know, they, they come away with big victories. And I say, Hoya's win, Hoya's win. They ask me how many times I'd like to look for the record. Like I think Vanderbilt, I said 17 against the West Virginia Mountaineers. We beat them in the NIT, you know, 18 or 19. You know, it's just kind of fun for them, you know. How does that all, like, how does that flow? I mean, it, it, it's obviously the energy of the game, um, but what's what's running through your mind at the end of the game when you go into a Hoyas win? Well, what runs through my mind is it exciting that they pull a game out at the end of the game, just the emotion of a game like that, and especially a big win. In other words, if they win by 20 points, they're, they're, I mean, the game is decided. They come back like against Creighton last year. They were down 11 and and, and, and held them to a, you know, they're, they're, it was a one-point win. They missed their last shot, and I just, you know, you just get caught up with the emotion, and the fans love it when you stand up they say Hoyas win Hoyas win Hoyas win Hoyas win they, they really the fans really do appreciate it that was the thing I was curious about too was you don't often see people stand up and turn around and face the crowd when they do it what's it like for you to turn around and 
and I say that because a lot of times as broadcasters, we don't get to feel the emotion that's in the arena other than what we hear. You get to turn around and see it. And I have to imagine that makes the moment, particularly for you, a little bit more interesting. Absolutely. And in fact, the fans love it because, you know, when I stand up at the end of a game, and I, and I do it in, in a kind of, as I say, diplomatic way. I mean, you're not trying to insult the other team. But the fans, you know, the Georgetown fans, they, they grew up on Hoyas win, Hoyas win, Hoyas win. And, and when you say that, you get them into it, you know, for at least for a half a minute or so, they really enjoy it. Did Wallace get fouled is the other one? Uh, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. You look back on that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Describe, uh, describe yourself as a broadcaster. If somebody's never heard Rich Javotkin, um, what are they going to hear when they turn on the dial and listen to a Georgetown game? Well, I, I would hope they would hear energy. I would hope they would hear someone who they, they can relate to, they can follow, who, who, who doesn't drown himself in terms of, of screaming and hollering. You know, there are times when you have to get excited. You know, a prior jam in transition, those kinds of things. But they, they would just hear an individual who puts a lot of energy in the game, gives people the right amount of statistics versus the play-by-play so that they can really get energized by a broadcast. You have to be the eyes and the ears and the total medium doing a broadcast. In other words, when you listen to a game, you have to put in perspective that you're sitting in the arena in the same spot I am and trying to get not only the score and the time and all that stuff, but the emotion of what's going on. If it's kind of a dead game, your emotion should go on. If there's a run, 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 a lot of excitement, hopefully your voice will reflect that. How much... uh do you still listen back to yourself today um, and evaluate what you're doing on a daily basis, um, particularly in seasons, but then also, I guess, out of season is, is popular for people to kind of reflect as a whole? You know, I've listened to tapes over the years, and I say to myself, okay, my style's been pretty much the same. And then I say to myself, you know what, no matter what I did 10 years ago or five years ago or a week ago, I still have to do a good delivery today, and I have to be on point today. So as much as you want to learn from it, and I've been pretty much balanced over the 40-some years, as I look back on the tapes, they've been pretty consistent. What makes the good broadcast to you? I mean, when you st- and we talked about the things that you do stylistically, but when you stand up from the table at the end of the day, what makes you feel good? I, I, I feel good because I've prepared for a game. I'm able to deliver a game. I'm, for the most part, mistake-free, and, and you don't jump ahead of yourself you know, and try to advance things. I think you have to do it. Be in the moment. And again, I think preparation is, is very critical because if you're prepared, if there's dead time, you have things that you can fill it with. And again, just following the flow of the game. I think that's the most important thing. Fans want to know what's going on. You, you try to give the emotion of the game, the flow of the game, the stats appropriately, and, 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 and mix it up in a broadcast. If I can bring things a little full circle and go back to the way things used to be, obviously there's been a lot of changes in college sports and in college basketball. Um, we were talking just before we hit record about coming out and playing Butler and Creighton and more recently DePaul, even though that's been a, a more recent Big East staple. Um, what's it like for you as a broadcaster to develop new rivalries, to see some old rivalries go away, uh, you know, that you don't get to go to the carry you did this year, but you don't get to go to the carry dome every year anymore. Um, and certainly you don't get to go to Manly Fieldhouse. Uh, but, but you lose that little bit of, of rivalry um, but also get a chance to develop some new ones. Yeah, you always miss the old relationships that they had. I've always enjoyed the trip to Syracuse and talking to their broadcasters and being on their radio. The other day we played Connecticut, and in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. We played Connecticut, and uh, Wayne Norman grew up in Willimantic and is the sports director and program director of WILI Willimantic. My wife was a student at UConn getting her master's, and she got a Facebook 
uh, a text from, from, from one of her buddies said, I listened to your husband on the Connecticut pregame show. I mean, small world. It's just amazing. But, um, you know, get, get, getting back to your, your question, you know, the, the, the thing is that, that uh, the old people I really enjoy. I still kind of keep in touch with them. And, you know, because you, you, you lose the identification. You're not in the same league anymore. You're not with Connecticut. You're, you're not with uh, Syracuse. You're not with a lot of teams, the Boston Colleges, the Louisvilles. You know, you, you had Pittsburgh. I always enjoy seeing Billy Hillgrove and Dick Grote, two great broadcasters, the Notre Dame people. You know, so I get an opportunity then when I come back, like last year, the ACC that was in Washington, and I was able to go there and, and schmooze with all those people. It's really nice, you know, to, to still be connected to those people. But again, now you have new rivalries. The Butler people are very, very nice. Obviously, Creighton. Um, we, we used to play Xavier on occasion in the NCAA, so I knew them. So it, it, it's good to keep in touch and also see new cities. You know, we, we didn't get to Indianapolis. We didn't get to Omaha. And, and of course, you know, Cincinnati used to play uh, UC. So, you know, it, it's nice to see some new rivalries. What do you like to do when you travel? You come to a new city. Uh, do, do you like to get out and explore? I do. I, I love to get out and explore. In fact, before I go to a city, I'm always looking at, you know, I'm looking at the website. What, what can I see that's new? And, yeah, of course. I, I, you know, I, I'm a people person. I, I've always traveled a lot in my life. And when I come to a new city, I like to explore it. Sure. Unfortunately, you know, when you charter in and sometimes you get in like the night before a game, you don't have a whole lot of time to prepare the next day. But, but it, it's, it's been a good ride. Yeah. Have you done Cafe Patachu in Indianapolis? I have. Yes. Well done. Yes, yes, well done. St. Elmo's, yeah, well done. So that's, uh, you know, there, there's certain things you have to have. Yeah. Uh, I guess last question, and it's a selfish one for me, but I'm curious, uh, and, and I mentioned what it was like to go play those old rivalries. Um, but what was it like when uh, John Thompson grabbed the microphone and declared Manly Fieldhouse closed? I think that was one of the most marquee statements in the history of college basketball, especially the Big East, especially Georgetown's rivalry. In in, in fact, you know, when when I heard John say that, just, you know, stopping the 57-game winning streak, uh, you know, the, the Louie and Bowie show, and, and just to go up there on that Monday night was just, you know, I look b- back on that and I said, if there's one highlight in my career outside of winning the national championship, that has to be pretty much the, the second. Rich, we could go on forever because I'd love to pick your brain, um, but i got to go do a game myself as well. But I appreciate you uh, taking some time and sitting down with me here. Well, I'm glad you had an opportunity to hear some of the things, you know, us guys that have been this thing for 40 some years you know we have a lot of stories you know a lot of things that that we felt we accomplished you know hopefully there'll be a lot more and 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 thank you very much for having this opportunity gives me an opportunity to reminisce about all the things that i've done in 40 years you know you don't get a chance to really sit down with people and discuss you know what what you've done throughout most of my life and and it's been something that's been very special to me and hopefully i can continue a few more years down the road people want to find you uh, at Hoyas Win on Twitter? At Hoyas Win on Twitter is fine, and, and feel free to do that, yes. That is Rich Javotkin, the voice of the Georgetown Hoyas. If you couldn't tell, by the way, we recorded that conversation in person. Uh, Rich was unbelievably kind enough to meet with me when Georgetown was in Indianapolis. They played Butler last weekend at Hinkle Fieldhouse. So Rich and I met up Saturday morning of that game and, and sat in the lobby at the, the, the courtyard downtown in Indianapolis and chatted about his life and career. So uh, my genuine thanks to Rich, not just for taking time on the phone, but for taking time out of his travel schedule and, and waking up early. <laughs> I had a game in the afternoon that Saturday. He had a game at 8 o'clock at night. So we met to do this at 9 a.m., uh, which is not that early, but it's uh, an early start to a really long day. So uh, many thanks to Rich Javadkin for, for sitting down with us and uh, sharing some knowledge and sharing some insight. It's always interesting 
just to see how this business has changed, how this industry has changed, and to see and talk to somebody who has been through it all and share those stories. Uh, you know, as fun as it is to have some of the younger guys that we've had on over the last couple of weeks, uh, it's great to get their perspectives, particularly for a guy like me and for a lot of you I know out there are younger guys that are getting into this industry now, uh, so we can kind of hear very relatable stories as to what other guys are going through now, but it's always fun to take that step back and visit with uh, the the sages of this industry and talk to the guys who have done it for a very long time and have seen a lot of things, get their perspectives and hear their stories. So glad to have Rich Javotkin on the podcast this week. We're going to go to the minor league baseball ranks next week. Sort of. Minor League Baseball, we'll also talk some college basketball because the Buffalo Bulls are in town in Muncie, Indiana. We play tonight in uh, a 9 o'clock game, p.m. on ESPNU. So if you're listening to this podcast Friday morning, you can catch uh, Ball State and Buffalo on uh, ESPNU tonight. But uh, Josh Wetzel's in Muncie, so uh, Josh Wetzel and I are are, uh, going to meet up here this afternoon and uh, knock out next week's episode. So if you want to hear about Josh Wetzel and his really cool background and story and uh, just hear from a really good broadcaster uh, join us again next week here on play by playcast but for rich javatkin my name is joel Gadet. that's marshmallow and we are out